Welcome, everyone, to episode 26 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and in today's episode, we're stepping just slightly outside of Ohio into wilder Kentucky, and we're headed to Bobby Mackey's Music World. But first, a bit of news. The first Ohio Unsolved t-shirts are finally available online today at ohiounsolved.com. Depending on how well they do will determine how fast I get more, and in the future, some different designs as well. I'm currently looking for someone to design the official logo for the podcast. So if you know anyone that's a graphic designer with fair prices, please let me know. Now let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Cincinnati, Ohio, and its surrounding cities are known to be pretty haunted. From the Golden Lamb in Lebanon, to Kings Island in Mason, and the abandoned subway beneath the city of Cincinnati. But all of these places fail to compare to Bobby Mackey's just across the Ohio River. It is said to be the most haunted nightclub in America, and it has quite the past attached to it. In 1850, a slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant was built on the land. It was very large, and in the basement of the building sits a well. At the time, this well was used to dispose of the slaughtered animals' blood and guts. Later, in the 1890s, for reasons still unknown, the slaughterhouse was shut down, and the well was just left there to sit until it was made a key part in ritualistic sacrifices that were used by many different satanic cults. Many of these rituals involved both animal and human sacrifices. The Satanists would do this in order to prove their loyalty to the devil and to try to gain his favor. A lot of this was rumors and stories passed around town in order to scare the children. But it wasn't until the town saw a truly horrifying crime in 1896 that they started to believe their own stories. Now let's get into the story of what happened to Pearl Bryan. Pearl Bryan was a young woman who was living in Greencastle, Indiana in 1896. Growing up in both a religious family and community, 
You can only imagine how scared she was when she became pregnant by her boyfriend, William Wood, the son of the local Methodist minister. William then convinced her to get an abortion. He contacted his friend, Scott Jackson, who was a dental surgery student in Ohio, in hopes that he would be able to help with the procedure. Unknown to him, though, Jackson was rumored to have ties to a satanic cult that practiced in the torn-down slaughterhouse in Wilder, Kentucky. Pearl left her home on February 1st, 1896, and she told her family that she was going to Indianapolis, but that was the last time that they would ever see her alive. Since she was actually meeting Jackson and his roommate, Alonzo Walling, in Cincinnati. At the time, she was already five months pregnant. Unfortunately for her, Jackson's skills were lacking. The first thing that he and Alonzo had tried was to induce an abortion using cocaine, but that didn't work. Next, they tried to use dental tools, and they ended up botching that as well. For nearly an hour, they had a crying, frightened, and bleeding young woman on their hands, and they had no idea what to do with her. With little to no options left, they decided to take her across the Ohio River to Kentucky and snuck away to a secluded area near Fort Thomas. It was here that they killed Pearl by severing her head from her body with the dental tools while she was still unconscious. After the murder, they dumped her body about two miles from the abandoned slaughterhouse, but they kept her head. In fact, they were only able to identify her body by her shoes. This is because the company's imprint was on the shoes she had been wearing at the time, and they were able to confirm with the authorities that she had sold them to her. Some of her blonde hair was later found inside a valise in Jackson's room. So where did Pearl's head go? Many people believe that it was used in a satanic ritual and dumped in the well at the old slaughterhouse due to all the rumors about Jackson. Luckily, this story at least ended with some sort of justice. In 1897, both Jackson and Walling were put on trial and sentenced to death by public hanging. Her boyfriend, William, made a deal with the authorities to save himself, but he had to testify against the two of them. The two men were also offered a deal. Life sentences for the location of Pearl's head, but they refused. Perhaps they were afraid of Satan's wrath if they ever revealed the location because the cult was involved. It is said that the noose was being slipped around Walling's neck as he said he would come back and haunt the area for all eternity, and it seems that he has followed through with his promise. Fast forward to the 1950s, and a new man owned the building, and he opened a bar, and he named it the Latin Quarter. There isn't much known about him, except that he had a very beautiful daughter named Joanna. He knew that his daughter was beautiful, so he was very protective over her, and he never let her date any of the men that would come to ask her out but she soon caught the eye of a new performer at the club. 
With Joanna returning his affections, they began the forbidden love affair. Soon after, she became pregnant with his child. Both terrified of what would happen if her father ever found out, they quickly made plans to run away together and begin their new life. But someone else found out, and the first thing they did was tell the father. Her father obviously disapproved of this, and he had her boyfriend murdered. Grief-stricken, she did the only logical thing that she could think of at the time, and she poisoned her father. Now left with no one in her life, she decided that it was no longer worth living. So the night came that she killed her father, Joanna ended her own life in the basement right next to the well, leaving nothing behind but the smell of her rose perfume. With how tragic her ending was, it's not surprising that Joanna finds it difficult to leave the bar. Even decades after her death, in fact, there are a number of people who claim to have seen her or felt her presence. One employee who worked there said that they have seen a woman who calls herself Joanna behind the bar. And when she disappears, apparently the sweet smell of roses lingers. But she wasn't the only one who had an experience with her spirit, because Bobby's wife, who would help run the bar, claims that she would often be overcome with the scent of roses whenever she was in the basement. Also, according to Bobby's wife, when she was pregnant, she would still stay at the bar just to help around the place. Then one day, while she was vacuuming the stairs of the building, she felt the arms of a man wrap around her waist. Her first thought was, oh, it's probably Bobby. But when she turned around, there was no one there. Panic set in when she felt the arms pick her up and the next thing she knew, she had been thrown down the stairs. When she was asked what had happened, she described the spirit as a man who fit the description of Alonzo Walling, one of the students that killed Pearl. She said that he screamed at her, Get out! Get out! She now refuses to step foot in the bar ever again. Not everything that happens at the bar is as sinister as what has happened to Bobby's wife, with multiple patrons coming forward constantly and describing the experiences that they had in the bar. One person claims to have experienced multiple things over a span of time, including feeling a suffocating heat, seeing a trash can fly across a room, and also seeing a man with a handlebar mustache yell at him, die game, die game, in the men's restroom, which is Latin for dying well. Perhaps even more scary is the claim by the former caretaker of the building. According to the man, he was possessed by a demonic spirit when he was living there, and even according to Bobby, he witnessed his exorcism on site by an ordained minister. Other staff have also come forward and shared their experiences with Bobby as well, although he remains a skeptic himself. According to one of his managers, she too has experienced unusual things inside the bar. 
She said that when she normally closes the place for the night, she goes around the property to lock all of the doors and turn off all of the lights and appliances. But sometimes, when she would return to open the next day, she would find all of the lights turned on, the doors unlocked, and the jukebox on, playing the song Anniversary Waltz. A skeptic would say that maybe someone else had just arrived before her to open the business, which could be true, but it still doesn't explain how the jukebox could be playing a song that it doesn't have or playing at all when it isn't even plugged in. Some other ghosts have been known to frequent the establishment are Buck Brady, the former owner of the nightclub before he killed himself, and the headless spirit of poor Pearl, still wandering around looking for her head. I have personally been in the basement at Bobby Mackey's while working as a production assistant on the TV show Paranormal Lockdown, and I can definitely tell you how creepy it is down there. I didn't see anything myself, and based on the stories that I've heard about it, I'm glad that I didn't. Standing in front of that well, you could almost feel the evil negative energy coming from it. I would go back, but I don't think I could go down there by myself. Have any of you guys been to Bobby Mackey's? Have you done one of their ghost hunts or had an experience of your own there? I would love to hear about it and share it in a future episode. Our next story is one from a writer that I read from last week. This is another experience that they had, and as always, I will be reading from the author's perspective. This story takes place in a town just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. So when I was a child, my mother was a single mom. My sister and I and my mother lived at my grandparents' house. It was a smaller house, so we had to share a room and a king-size bed. This house was an older one, so we always heard strange noises. I even remember my grandmother would joke about the strange noises and claim they were her ghost friend, George. And it made us laugh, but just about every night, I went to bed scared. We would hear scratching on our floors, like a dog scratching hardwood floors, except we didn't have a dog. We heard the scratching and walking sounds almost every night. We could even hear it breathing and panting. So this went on for a while. Then one night, after we had just gotten settled in bed with the lights out, I was looking out the window, when all of a sudden, a swirl of black smoke formed from the window and floated down towards the floor where it formed into a Doberman. I stared at this dog as my heart dropped and every hair on my body stood up. I was paralyzed in fear. So then the Doberman starts to walk towards the end of our bed and I can hear those familiar nail taps on the floor. It walked to the dresser that's in front of our bed and it put its two front paws on the dresser and looks into the mirror and I can see its eyes staring back at me. Its eyes were red and glowing. 
Then it gets down and starts walking around towards my side of the bed. I then buried my head under my mother's arm and I did not move until the very next morning. At the time that this happened, I was six years old. I never told anyone what I had seen that night and I never saw that dog ghost again. Some years passed and I think I was about 13. One day, I decided to tell my sister about what I had seen that night. She looked at me as white as a ghost and told me that she had seen the exact same thing. So then we went to my mom and told her our story. I thought that she would think that we were crazy, but she just looked at us speechless. She then confessed that she had also seen this demonic looking black Doberman in our room that night. So then curious I asked her, so where did the dog go after I hid my face? She told me that once it came around to my side of the bed, that it just jumped through the window and out. I felt a big relief knowing that I wasn't crazy and they had also seen it. My mother later told me about people who lived in the house across the street from us. She told me that sometime in the 1960s that the family that lived there, the mother took her son trick-or-treating. It was Halloween night and when the mother and son came home, they found the father hanged along with his three Dobermans. So that is my story. I also have another story on this house across the street from us that I will post later. But for my readers, I'm just wondering, by the information I have given, does the dog that I saw sound like a ghost or something demonic? It definitely sounds like just a ghost to me. I feel like if it was something demonic, they would have seen it more than just that one time, or it might have even tried anything that night that they saw it. Now our final story is one person's encounter with the native Ohio cryptid, Orange Eyes. My first experience with the paranormal happened when I was five or six years old. I'm 48 years old now, and this one experience is so itched into my memory that when I recall it today, it is still as clear as if it happened to me a few moments ago. Now we lived on a cattle ranch. At the time in the 60s, there were no street lights on the ranch and just a gravel road across cattle grates to our small isolated ranch house in the pasture. I remember going to the screened in back door that night and seeing my mother standing in the square of light cast from our kitchen through the door and onto the yard. She was raking out scraps for our dogs into their dog pen. She saw that I was at the door and asked me to bring the flashlight that always sat on our kitchen counter. I took the flashlight to her without even a question in mind. She then cast a beam of light into the dark pasture where I could see two orange eyes faintly glowing in the distance. What is it, Mama? I remember asking, and she replied that she had been watching the eyes for a little while. 
She thought that it might be a cow at first, but the eyes were too close to the ground. We watched as the eyes started down the pasture towards some large trees that grew at the side of our house. The eyes didn't move like cow eyes in a slow, plodding manner, but smoothly, more like a bird in my mind. They remained close to the ground and always watching us with their orange glow. It glided smoothly to a huge live oak tree that grew maybe 25 feet from our house. Then the eyes did the strangest thing. They turned parallel to the tree trunk and glided up the side of the tree for about 15 feet, then disappeared around the back of the huge trunk and then out onto the first branch that grew in the opposite side of the tree. I remember my mom saying, that's no cow, as softly as she traced a flashlight beam along the limb underneath the eyes. The beam caught no sign of fur or feet of any kind, just empty blackness like the night. The eyes soon disappeared into a large clump of leaves at the end of the branch. My mom and I ran through the back door, through the house, and into our front porch. My dad was sitting on the couch with the younger children watching a comedy on TV. I remember it must have been a comedy because I remember laughter from the audience or soundtrack. My dad said, what is it? My mother said, I almost at the time, there's something in the pasture before we ran out onto the porch. We stood in the light that cast from the front door and we watched the end of the tree branch bouncing up and down wildly in the flashlight beam. My dad was trying to corral the younger children back from the door. I remember turning around to see what he was doing, and when I turned back, the moon started to rise over the flat landscape, casting a bluish glow. Now we could see, without aid from the flashlight, the branch bounced up and down. I remember the rustle of leaves and a curious smell came to me on the night air, like burning wood. The branch stopped bouncing because the owner of the eyes had jumped out of the tree and onto the gravel road in front of our house. For a moment, it was obscured by the hanging, still lightly bouncing clump of leaves, and then it started to move down the road in front of our house. The moon showed the owner of the orange glowing eyes, glowing more brightly now in the moonlight. It was no cow for whatever was stood on two spindly legs like animal legs, then ended in two thin, narrow hooves. From the legs upward was a huge body with no discernible arms and a hump of a head with two very long straight horns that curved slightly upward at the ends. The entire body was pitch black and at least six feet tall from the hooves to the horns, the only color being the bright orange eyes. This thing hopped on its two legs down the road. I could hear the shifting crunch of gravel and see blue sparks fly up its feet as it came back down on the road. My mother and I, accompanied by my dad, all piled into the house and slammed the door. 
We were breathing as if we had just ran a race. My dad, from his position, with his back against the door, said breathlessly, That's a plat eye. There's treasure buried near that tree. I didn't understand then, but years later, I discovered exactly what a plat eye is. In southern legend, plat eyes are the ghosts of murdered animals that are set to guard hidden treasure by a living human. My dad never dug around the tree to see if there actually was hidden treasure, believing whatever treasure there might have been cursed. This singular incident from my young life set me on the road to being a true believer in the flip side of the coin from our reality. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that things exist in our world which are almost beyond reason to explain. Many paranormal occurrences have befallen me in my life, but I will save those for another day. I love stories and movies about cryptids. I only wish that there were more of them. You'd think with the amount of Bigfoot sightings that there would be more stories from the people that witnessed them. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the stories, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps to get this podcast to the ears of other people that would enjoy it as well. Make sure you join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. If you do enjoy this podcast, please consider helping to support us by subscribing on Patreon. There are three tiers to choose from, with monthly bonus episodes starting at the $5 tier and up. Also, don't forget... The first Ohio Unsolved t-shirt is now available at ohiounsolved.com. This is a limited run just to see how they do. This particular design may come back or it could be a one-time thing, so get them before they're gone. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and I hope you truly enjoy the stories. As always, make sure to keep your doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.